You are listening to the podcasts of Cedar Hills Community Church in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Hello, friends and neighbors. I'm Alan Crandall, part of the outreach team at Cedar Hills Church. Whether you're a regular partner or someone who just happened to find us today on the internet, we're glad you're here. I'm standing in a nearly empty church building. Normally we have several hundred people here to worship. Today it's just a few of us who make this online stuff possible. It's our fifth Sunday of virtual worship, and it still feels weird. I'm used to hearing the buzz of enthusiastic, hello, how are you, thank you for sharing your story, can I pray for you? But today, we just have to imagine the joyful conversation that usually bubbles up between these walls. Hold on. We just have to imagine, church? That can't be right. We don't have the big box worship band to inspire us, but we still have each other. We have our telephones. We have FaceTime. We know how to mail cards. We're still praying for each other and texting. This faith community has not gone away, not even for a pandemic. Ooh, that awful word, pandemic. I hate to think of it, hate to say it. Isn't it incredible that one of the smallest elements of nature, a teensy virus, could cause such massive illness and panic virtually all over the globe? Daily routines and future plans ripped to shreds. Proud nations and vibrant industries laid low, just like that. Smacked in the face with the reality that our lives are very, very fragile. Thank God one of our dear church friends made it home from the hospital a few days ago. We're praying for others as well. I'm glad God loves the world, that he's still in control. With that in mind, let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew for some really good news. I'm reading the final paragraph of the Jesus story in Matthew 28, 16 to 20. In light of our present situation, there's something interesting, remarkable even, about the vocabulary in the Old Greek New Testament. You see, the word pandemic comes from two Greek words, pan which means all, and demos, which means people, pandemic, something affecting all people. And here's what I find interesting. Matthew uses the word pan, as in pandemic, repeatedly to describe the mission of the risen Jesus. So listen as I read for the words all and always. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And when they saw him, he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe All that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, 
to the end of the age. I wonder if the Bible is trying to tell us something. Would it be fair to call it a pandemic, a pandemic of hope? Last week, we celebrated the empty tomb, Jesus' triumph over death. Hallelujah, he's risen. And that miracle sets in motion what happens next. Since Christ is risen, he has all authority in heaven and earth. That means he has absolute power to fix all the broken, yucky stuff in this world. Can cynical, hateful people reverse the resurrection? Can lost jobs thwart his plan to save our bodies and souls? Can virus or recession or social distancing or anything else in all creation separate us from his love? No! Christ is invincible. Like a master chess player who can overcome any move by his less able opponent, Jesus will make all things new because he has all authority. Since Christ is risen, he will ultimately transform all nations, all cultures. The restoration of the human race will be comprehensive. This pan word shows up not just here, but all through the Gospels, where we read that Jesus heals all our diseases and forgives all our sins and affirms God's promise to restore all things. Think of it. As Abraham Kuyper said, there's not a single square inch in the whole creation over which Jesus does not cry, this, this too is mine. Since Christ is risen, all his commands get embedded in us and through us spread in a chain reaction everywhere. So what exactly is Jesus spreading? It boils down to this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus gives us not just a philosophy, but a love-saturated, highly infectious way of life. He inspires disciples who make more disciples in a rippling effect of ever-widening circles. In other words, Jesus goes viral Since Christ is risen, he is with us always until we're made perfectly whole. This is important because we have a spiritual disease lurking in our souls that needs constant medication. Just like a brittle diabetic who needs a daily dose of insulin, we need Jesus every moment to counteract our natural selfishness. We're born curved inward, fearful, self-protective. This is the instinct that compels us to strip store shelves bare of toilet paper. Self-preservation, it's natural, but it also cripples the ability to love others as ourselves. Jesus came to inject us with a higher life, one that is self-giving, curved outward, a divine life. During World War II, Britain was under daily bombardment by the Nazi Air Force. It was an earth-shaking crisis even more horrific than the one we face now. While bombs were falling, Oxford professor C.S. Lewis gave a series of weekly radio broadcasts about the Christian faith, and these talks were later compiled in the book Mere Christianity. 
He explains that in our natural state, we have a merely finite biological life that's inevitably going to wither and die. But the offer Christ makes is this, that if we let God have his way, we will become what Lewis calls little Christs, Jesus' divine life passing from him to us, socially transmitted here and there and everywhere. And Lewis calls this chapter of his book The Good Infection. He continues, quoting, From that point, the effect spreads through all mankind. It makes a difference to people who lived before Christ and to people who've never even heard of him. It's like dropping into a glass of water one drop of something which gives a new taste or a new color to the whole lot. By the way, that reminds me of how we used to make Easter eggs with our kids by dropping a drop of food coloring into a glass. And pretty soon it diffuses all that water. The color is everywhere. So what difference does Lewis go on? What difference does this make? How does it affect the whole of humanity? It's just this, he says, that the business of becoming little Christ's passing over from the temporary biological life into the timeless spiritual life has been done for us already. Humanity is already saved in principle. We individuals have to appropriate this salvation, but the really tough work, the bit we could not have done for ourselves, has been done for us. We don't have to try to climb up to that spiritual life by our own efforts. That life has already come down into the human race. If we only lay ourselves open to the one man in whom it was fully present, he will do it in us and for us. Lewis says, remember, it's a good infection. One of our race has this new life. If we get close to him, we shall catch it from him. I love that metaphor, especially right now. Lately, I've been watching the woodsy acre behind our house turn from dull gray to vibrant green as winter gives way to spring. The longer days and warmer rays are igniting what looks like a new creation. Winter is trying to keep its stranglehold with snowy blowbacks, but the sun is relentless. According to the gospel, Jesus is that true light who came into the world to enlighten everyone. Remember, he has all authority, so his life-giving rays cannot be stymied. Every square inch of the world belongs to Jesus, and he will reclaim all of it. I want to look now at a very puzzling phrase in today's story. Matthew writes that when the disciples saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. We realize that at first the disciples felt the empty tomb was too good to be true, but what puzzles me is that by now, the last paragraph of Matthew's story, the risen Jesus has already appeared numerous times to these disciples. They've had the chance to hear his voice, eat with him, even touch the wounds in his hands and his feet. They couldn't doubt the Lord was alive, standing in front of them, so what did they doubt? The Greek word here for doubt doesn't mean intellectual skepticism. It's more like what we would call cognitive dissonance. 
the internal confusion one feels in the face of something totally unexpected. The thing the disciples are uncertain about is themselves. He's asking these guys to continue his work in the world and they feel they're not ready. These doubting disciples remind me of my wedding day, August 22nd, 1971. Jan and I were new college graduates. We had dated several years. I had no doubt that Jan loved me and I loved her. But still, right up to the day of the wedding, I was vacillating. Was I ready to commit myself, body and soul, to this woman? To forsake all others? To give her my whole paycheck every month? To open to whatever she wanted? I knew Jan was the real deal. Still, I was uncertain. Well, Jesus, in our story, wants his disciples to spread this infectious love, but they're not sure they can do it. I don't blame them. Jesus often said challenging things like, love your enemy, turn the other cheek, don't retaliate. But how did that great idea work out for Peter when soldiers came to arrest Jesus in Gethsemane? He drew his sword and angrily cut off a guy's ear and then ran away. Yet Peter had seen how human impossibilities become divine possibilities when Jesus is around. One day as Peter's boat was about to sink in a storm, Jesus suddenly appeared on the water. He called Peter to walk toward him. And of course, when Peter tried to figure it out and took his eyes off Jesus, he began to sink until Jesus drew him up and walked along beside him. When you think about it, all of Jesus' commands are impossible to realize on our own. They're what we might call impossible possibilities. Once a rich man asked Jesus how to be part of the new world he was constructing, so Jesus told him, sell your stuff, give to the poor, then you'll be able to taste the heavenly life here on earth where love reigns supreme. Well, the rich man couldn't give up his material comfort. And when the disciples saw this promising convert being turned away, they complained, wait a minute, Jesus. If this guy can't make it in your kingdom, how can anyone be saved? Jesus replied, exactly. This is impossible for mere mortals, like squeezing a camel through the eye of a needle, but with God, everything is possible Impossible possibilities. Perhaps we should look at the commands of Jesus in a new light. Jesus didn't say you should love God with all your heart. He didn't say I demand you love your neighbor as yourself. What he actually said is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Could it be that this command is really more like a promise that Jesus gives what he demands? Could it be he's saying we'll be able to love like him because we are loved by him? Maybe that's why he says emphatically, look, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's be honest, sometimes it's hard to remember that Jesus is always with us 
When people mistreat me, I'm tempted to retaliate. When I get anxious about my own needs, it's hard to be generous when others ask me for help. But if I remember that Jesus is always with me, maybe I'll think, Jesus loves a lot of horrible people, including me, and he can show me how to love them too. Or maybe I'll think, Jesus has already given me his all, so I don't really have to worry about having enough. Whatever I need to love my neighbor, Jesus will be right there beside me. See, Jesus never meant for us to spread the good infection of God's love by our own goodness. It's God's own presence injected here into this world through the miracle of incarnation that changes you and me into little Christs. And since Christ is risen, we belong to one who has all authority in heaven and earth, more than enough to transform everything, every square inch of creation. Since he has risen, we can love each other in impossible ways. We can serve an impossibly broken world because Jesus is already out there doing impossible things each and every day. Here's my confession. Even though I worship Jesus as Lord, I still catch myself doubting the impossible stuff he wants to do through me. So here's my closing prayer, and I ask you to pray it with me now. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, keep my heart focused on Jesus until he permeates my soul. Change my selfish heart. Make me a carrier of his infectious love. Help me remember that if he is with me, everything is possible. And Lord, thank you for giving me such faithful brothers and sisters in Cedar Hills Community Church. It's in this community that I so often hear his voice and feel his powerful touch. Jesus promised that whatever, whenever we gather in his name, he'll be here among us. It's in his name, then, that we ask for your blessing, dear God. Amen. We pray you are blessed by today's message from Cedar Hills Community Church. For more information about our church or how to support our ministry, visit www.cedarhillscr.org.